your Bibles, turn with me in your Bibles to Ruth chapter 1. <clears throat> We're going to begin reading um, in verse 18 and continue on to the end of the chapter. to the uh, first service that um, we have moved uh, our, my mother-in-law into uh, our house this weekend, flew to Lancaster on Thursday, came back on Friday, um, had some in the church that were concerned about me physically, not sure why, but, uh, but it's my voice that's had the issue because I spoke to Nathan for nine hours straight in the truck on the way back, so now I barely have uh, the, the capacity to tell you what I need to tell you this morning, so pray for that. Uh, beginning in verse 18, hear the word of the Lord. And when Naomi saw that she, that's Ruth, was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. If you remember Mara means bitterness. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. It's pretty good. Our Father, we ask that you would continue to humble us before your word in order that you might exalt us with Christ. Help us to see Jesus unfolded before our eyes in this passage. Help us to see your good provision, your kindness to your people and how you fill them with the fullness of God. We pray these things in Christ. Amen. So in the early 1970s that George Foreman was the undefeated heavyweight champion of the world, he had uh, reached the apex of success, and yet he still was wondering to himself, is this all there is to life? Completely empty. Success didn't make him happy, great wealth didn't make him happy, he had more money than he knew what to do with, even back then it was a tremendous amount. He had uh, three houses, 12 cars, and every possible toy that you could think of, and yet he was completely miserable. More than once he said that he had toyed with the idea of just driving his car off the cliff and ending it all, because he could not find happiness in the midst of his abundance. Similarly, you know about Tom Brady. Uh, now I think he's won six Super Bowls. Uh, back in 2008, he did an interview with 60 Minutes when he had only won three. And at the time, he had won three Super Bowls, was MVP twice, was leading his team to an undefeated season, was making $20 million a year, and was dating all the A-list actresses and supermodels that he could find. And yet on 60 Minutes, he expressed his grief and frustration, saying this, why do I still think that there's something better out there for me? I may have reached my goal and my dream in life, and yet I still think, God, there's got to be more than this. 
I mean, this can't be all that there is. What's the answer then? The interviewer asked him. He said, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Now, when we read stories like this, hear them even, uh, you know, we, we've heard them probably, many of you probably grew up in church hearing, uh, it's a dime a dozen, there's so many of them. But uh, nowadays, uh, oftentimes these types of stories are shared online, and then there is a, a funny meme that makes fun of them, you know, in that sense. If you don't know what a meme is, ask anyone younger than me, they'll tell you all about them. I had to ask my kids three times, what's a meme? I don't know what a meme is. A meme is a, a picture or a video in which uh, a, a truth is spoken by some person, but it's made fun of by someone else, if you will. And so uh, oftentimes they'll take these statements that are made by people like Tom Brady and otherwise, and they'll say, well, that's a first world problem. Uh, and usually they'll put it in the, in the, the mouth, uh, the, the voice of a, a very poor villager in Africa somewhere saying, oh, yeah, I have the same problems as you. I, I just can't find happiness. I got all this stuff, you know, and they're living in some hut in the middle of nowhere. But there is some truth to the fact that, that both the first world citizen as well as the third world citizen shares the same lot in life. Uh, we all struggle with this concept of emptiness ever since Adam and Eve had become disappointed with God in the Garden of Eden. Every one of us now struggles with that sense of void, emptiness. Uh, we all live in a wasteland east of Eden. We don't live in paradise. We live somewhere else. And, and we're subjected to the same frustration, the same death, the same void that they experienced. Naomi, as you know, was not a first world citizen, but rather a third world citizen, if you will. And yet, she knew something of the fullness of life at one time, but then she lost it. Now she was empty and bitter with God. And all the while, she thought that God was against her. She could not see how God was using this for her good. She couldn't see any of it. Uh, so, uh, now as you know, when we're reading the book of Ruth, we have an omniscient narrator telling us the story. So, uh, the narrator knows what's happened already. It's already passed. And uh, so uh, we have the benefit of knowing how the story ends, and we delight in the story because of it. But keep in mind, Ruth is, or excuse me, Naomi's in the midst of this. She's in the midst of her pain. She's in the midst of her bitterness. And she can't see what's ahead. It's not like she could just all of a sudden skip over to chapter 2 and see how Boaz is, is, is going to be such a, a kind man and gracious, redeeming man to her family. Can't skip ahead to chapter 4 and see this grand genealogy of how the Lord is not only going to bless Naomi, but bless her descendants for years to come and how God's going to work all this out for her good. She can't see it. And so she's just left with this void, feeling uh, an unbearable pain, knowing that she's lost all those that she's loved and is now empty. I think all of us have felt that at some time or another, some of us more keenly than others. Certainly the more you've lived, the more you've experienced it, I'd say. Depending upon your stage of life, uh, there's a reason why we call empty nesters empty nesters, right? One time they had a house full of kids, a house full of noise and action, excitement. And then all of a sudden, it's empty. You know, same way, those who have had a a spouse for 40, 50 years, all of a sudden they lose that spouse. And now all that's left is a empty placemat at the table, empty side of the bed. 
a sense of void there. You're missing something that you know at one time brought great delight. Same way, some of you who are younger may have experienced it in the sense that you, you had a really close friend, but then that friend drifted away from you, and now you feel that void. You're missing something. Uh, we all have experienced that, and all of us have suffered in some sense from it. Sometimes we know these things just happen. It's part of the fallen world in which we live. It's a result of sin. Uh, the world is naturally devolving backwards, if you will, to a state of disorder, a state of emptiness. Originally, God had created it all good. It was giving it life and beauty and filling it. But now, because of sin, it's, it's, it's decomposing. It's deteriorating. It's doing everything backwards, not as we would hope it to be. So because of this curse, it's always a, a sense of disharmony in the world. It's not as it should be. Of course, God's not absent in this. In fact, he was the one who subjected the world to this futility in hope that one day the world would be freed from its bondage and that we too would be freed uh, from our sin and look to the Lord by faith. So Naomi's not incorrect when she says it's the Lord who has made her empty. It is. He's done this. He also is the one who has brought this calamity upon her. She's right about that. Indeed, the Lord is sovereign over every aspect of our suffering. Um, I was sharing earlier that uh, my wife and I, when we were flying to Lancaster this weekend, uh, there was a, a woman and her son sitting behind us, and they were talking about suffering. She was reading books on Buddhism, and uh, the, basically the idea that suffering is just a state of mind. It's not quite an illusion, but it's elusive because you, you, you've misplaced uh, things in life, if you will. Her son is trying to follow her but disagreeing with her, and he's, he has no concept. He comes from a Christian background, but I took it, uh, but didn't quite understand the purpose of suffering. He kept trying to blame Satan or blame someone else and didn't quite understand uh, why God would allow suffering in life. I think most people who don't know the Lord have no understanding of suffering, of what it means, what's its purpose. There is a good purpose behind it. It's not something that's futile. It's not something that's pointless. God always uses for, uh, suffering for our good. Um, but those who don't get that, they're, they're not going to interpret their suffering correctly. Um, God always uses suffering, uses emptiness to lead us to something greater. Always. Um, it's like the, the widow uh, in Second Kings, if you remember... Uh, the one whom Elisha was ministering to, God purposely brings her to a point of emptiness in order that he might fill her. He purposely allows her in the midst of a famine to have nothing to eat and just very little oil left, and then he fills her jars full of oil. Well, in the same way, he purposely has brought Naomi to a place of emptiness in order that he might fill her jar, if you will, with something greater than what she was anticipating. In every case whether it's the rich person who has found emptiness in the vanity of their fullness or the person who has at one time had fullness but now is empty, each time the Lord is leading them to something greater, some fellowship with the Lord and intimacy that is greater than anything that they've ever experienced in their lives, anything that this world can offer them. I'll give you a couple examples. 
when David speaks in the Psalms, sometimes he uses this language that makes you just sound, it sounds like he's just enraptured by God. In Psalm 4, for instance, he says this of the Lord. He says, you have put more joy in my heart than they, that's the nations, than they have when their grain and wine abound. So in other words, the, the times in which you would think would be the most delightful times when it's time of harvest, it's time of plenty, it's time of feasting, drinking. He says, I've found more joy in you than they've ever tasted. Same way, Psalm 1611. He says, Lord, you make known to me the paths of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. He's describing this fullness of God when everyone else doesn't quite see it. Uh, John 15 verse 11, Jesus explains it this way. He says, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Uh, there's a huge difference between happiness and joy. I think we've talked about this before. Happiness is related to the word happenstance. Happenstance is a combination of two words, happening and circumstance. Uh, but the word happen or happening comes from the root hap, which means lucky. Lot, your lot in life or your lucky in, in life. And so um, when you hear the expression happy-go-lucky, that's just a same concept over and over again. Basically, if someone is happy, it's because they're lucky. It's all based upon their external stimuli around them, the circumstances all around them. They're only happy because they're lucky in life, right? Joy, at least biblical joy, is, is totally different than that. Biblical joy doesn't come from outside of you. It comes from within. It comes from the Holy Spirit indwelling within you. That's why Jesus said there's a, a joy that's going to be in you, not one that comes from outside of you. It's not based upon the events in your life, but rather based upon the intimacy that one has with the Lord that they will find a joy that cannot be found anywhere else. But for the Holy Spirit to fill us with that joy, we first must be emptied. In order for the Lord to give us something, first it has to be taken away. That's why Jesus says this in Luke chapter 6, verse 25. He says, Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. There's something about one who seeks to find their fullness in the things of the world that, that makes them unavailable to be filled with God. They cannot pay attention. They cannot uh, desire the things that God would have for them. It's, it's as Solomon says in Proverbs 27, verse 7, he says, The one who is full loathes honey, but to one who is hungry, everything bitter is sweet. If you already are full of something, nothing tastes sweet to you. But once you're emptied, then anything that normally would be bitter would taste sweet. That's what happens when someone is full of the Spirit of God. The bitter circumstances even can become sweet through that fellowship with the Lord. And it's, it's for those who are crying out for that, to, to, for the Lord to fill them in the midst of their hunger. They're the ones who find this joy in the midst of bitterness. This is the exact prayer that Paul prays. For the Christians in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 19 he says that they might know the love of Christ and be filled with the fullness of God every single time it talks about the filling of the spirit the filling of the fullness of God it's this idea of having a relationship with the Lord 
in which he is filling you in the midst of your emptiness. But there's a disconnect between us and God. We don't get that. Uh, we often misinterpret God. We think that he is doing us harm. We think that he's uh, somehow acting evil towards us, that suffering how, somehow is always bad. We don't interpret it as something that's good, that actually leads us to something that is better. Uh, suffering is not something that is evil. It's not something that's to be avoided. It's actually a mechanism that God uses to bring us good. And it's oftentimes only through suffering that we can receive that good. It's interesting, Naomi's return to Bethlehem is often compared to the prodigal son's return to his father's house in Luke 15, the passage that we just read a little bit earlier. Uh, if you remember, similar to the prodigal son, Naomi left her home, went to a faraway land in, look of something, in search of something better. And while she was there, a great famine came upon the land, just like the prodigal son. And at some point, she came to her senses and realized that there was more bread to be had at home than there was where she was, far away. The difference, and the most significant difference between those two stories is that when the prodigal son returns, he has a sense of hope. He has a sense of repentance. He's changed his mind. He, he knows it's always better to be in the father's house. But Naomi's not quite there. She's been emptied, but she's not yet been filled. She's sort of in between at that moment. She feels complete bitterness and feels the emptiness, but she does not yet receive the fullness of God. If Naomi can't see what God is doing through her suffering, well, then how can she cry out to him to fill her? That's the problem, right? Uh, I've already mentioned to you before that generally we have, theologically speaking, we, we often have what's referred to as a rearview mirror understanding of life. When God is doing something in our lives, at that moment, we don't always understand what he's doing. It's only in the past that we can look at it in the mirror and we see, oh, I get it now. This is what he's doing, right? Uh, and so sometimes that, that can hinder us from really fully embracing the Lord and, and the work that he's doing in our lives right now. But I would submit to you that there is something that we can gain even now in the present. There's something we can learn about what God is doing now. And there's something we can learn about what God is going to do in the future that will help us to interpret what's happening now. And so if you're uh, taking notes this morning, you're following along with uh, wanting to keep some points or write some points down here, the points. Three things that we can look at while we're in the midst of our suffering as we're waiting for God's purposes to unfold in our lives. So three things that we're to consider. First, we ought to look back on what God has already done in the past how he's already shown himself faithful. Second, we ought to look forward to what God is going to do in the future based upon the promises of God, how he's expressed those to us in his word. And then third, we ought to also carefully look for signs of God's grace in the present. So let's take a look at each of those in turn. First, considering what God has done in the past. Now, Naomi uh, she knew all that God had done in the past. Again, she grew up in a good Jewish home. She would have known about how the Lord had been faithful to his people, bringing them out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, how he had provided for them in the, in the wilderness, giving them manna from heaven and turning their bitter water into something sweet. Uh, she would have known about the, the, the great provision, the great protection, all of these things that he provided for them. 
how he'd given them a land and inheritance, given them a place of rest and joy in the promised land. But did Naomi consider those things in the midst of her suffering? It doesn't seem like she did at all. I mean, she doesn't talk about that at all with Ruth. She doesn't talk about that at all with Orpah. She doesn't bring it up to her friends when she comes back. All she sees, all she considers is what has happened in the last few years in the midst of her suffering. All she can, can understand is what she's feeling right now. She feels empty, but she has not yet considered how the Lord has filled empty people in the past and probably even in her own life. She's seen that take place, but she's not looking at that. She's not considering that. She's only considering what's happened in the last few years. In the same way, as Christians today, we do the same thing. It's easy for us to forget what the Lord has done for us years ago uh, when we, all we can focus on is what's happened in the last year or what's happened in the last few months or, uh, or something even shorter than that. We often forget how the Lord has provided for us and how he's redeemed us and he has turned our sorrow into joy. He's done it in the past. He can do it again, right? That's the, that's the whole point of these things. We have to look to the past, though, to see the better picture, the bigger picture. It's more than just what's happening at this moment. We have to remember even when we think about what Christ has done for us on the cross, how he has literally entered into our sorrow, entered into our bitterness, emptied in, entered into our emptiness. He's emptied himself of his glory in order that we might know something of the fullness of God. He becomes the suffering servant on the cross, taking the very words of bitterness from Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He became the bitter one in order to bring us something of the sweet. That's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's that we might look back to see what God has done. The reason why we celebrate it often is to remember what he has done so that we can live in the present knowing that God is going to treat us the same way. He is the same yesterday as he is today, as he is forever. He's going to continue to show his faithfulness and his love just as he did in the past. So we have to consider the past. You can't just consider what's happening at that moment. We're always going to misinterpret God by only considering the circumstances at the moment, especially when we think that our happiness is based upon our circumstances. But we also have to look to the future. The purpose of the book of Revelation and many of the other prophetical books is not just for us to be very curious about every possible little thing that could happen in the future. I'm always amazed at how easily Christians uh, become fearful of the future after reading the book of Revelation. It should be the other way around. Or how we end up fighting about uh, all the details about how we think it's going to happen. We don't, God doesn't tell us all the specifics. He doesn't tell us all the details. Ultimately, the, what he's telling us through those books is that there's an appointed time in which God will met out his perfect justice against the wicked. At the appointed time, he will defend all the godly from their abusers. There's a time in which he will usher in the reign of Christ in every nation all around the world. And that the new heavens and the new earth will be one. There's no more mourning, no more sadness, no more emptiness. In the end, it's good. It ends well. I was uh, reading a commentary about this uh, recently, about a guy who likes to watch old basketball games on ESPN Classic. Anybody here like that? I enjoy watching old games as well. 
but he spoke of the excitement, the anxiety, and the, the tenseness that oftentimes uh, basically the, the people watching the game can feel in the midst of the game because they don't know how it's going to end and they got so much uh, pent-up emotion based upon their support for their team. I mean, I remember when I was young, my sister and I were on opposite teams and she'd cry at the end of every game and I'd be cheering around the room. and Just so much energy, so much excitement or so much depression based upon how that team would do. And then he talks about watching it on ESPN Classic because ESPN Classic only shows games that are just like 10 or 20 years old. So it's already happened. You already know how it ends. You watched that game 20 years ago, but now you're watching it again. But this time, instead of being tense and upset and, and yelling at the screen and running around the room, whatever it is that you do and the crazy things that you do, you're sitting there and you're actually paying attention to all those little plays in which your team is actually doing better. They're coming back. At one time, they were down by 30 points, but at the last second, final moment, they shoot that shot, they win the game, and they win. And what a thrill that is. But you can enjoy it now because you're not so tense, right? Well, in the same way, the, those books in the Bible that, that give us that picture in the end, it's, it's meant to encourage us that in the end, we win. In the end, it ends well for us. Everything is good. In fact, I have a commentary on my shelf on the book of Revelation. The title is simply this, The Lamb Wins. That's all you need to know. You may not get all the specifics, but know this. In the end, the Lamb wins. And if you know the Lamb, guess what? You win too. Because we are all more than conquerors through him who loved us. And so if he wins, we win. <laughs> it all ends well. And so those passages like in Romans 8, in which Paul is saying that no one, because of what Christ has accomplished, no one will ever bring a charge against God's elect. There'll be no tribulation or distress or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or anything else that will ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So the very moment in which you're doubting the love of God, he's saying, listen to what I'm saying. There's a promise here. His love will never be separated from you. He will never bring a charge against you. And, and that's interesting because that's exactly what Naomi's doing at this moment. Naomi has interpreted God as testifying against her as a prosecutor in a court case. Literally, she sees God as her accuser. All the while, he's her defender. He's not the prosecutor. He's the mediator. He's helping her to see all that he's done for her. And yet she doesn't see it because she's not looking to the promises of God. Again, there are plenty of promises in the Old Testament, even in the book of Moses, in the books of Moses. All the promises that God had said for his people, all they had to do was believe it. But she wasn't looking to the future. She wasn't holding on to the promises of God. And so she misinterpreted his work. Of course, we do the same. We know that. And because of that, we, we get it wrong. Then finally, in addition to looking to the past and considering the future, we also have to carefully consider and look for the signs of God's grace in the present. It's just as important. I, I'm, fa I'm fascinated um, when reading the end of this passage in, in the book of Ruth, how Naomi has just heard Ruth make this awesome vow to stay with her, to love her, to help her, to even be buried where she's being buried, 
you see this awesome testimony of her faith in Christ Jesus. And yet, in verse 18, the response looks like she doesn't even care. Naomi doesn't, it doesn't even affect her whatsoever. There's no emotion. I mean, they're already crying left and right. There was no sense of joy here. Nothing is recorded of a prayer of thanksgiving or any gratefulness. It merely says, she said no more. I guess we're going on then because Ruth wants to go. So that's, that's how it's going to be. You know? There's no sense in which she understands that Ruth's kindness, Ruth's love, Ruth's faithfulness, that in and of itself is a gift of God to her, that she has something of God's grace displayed in Ruth. Even when they arrive in Bethlehem, Naomi doesn't acknowledge Ruth to her friends or to her relatives. She doesn't say anything about it at all. I tell you this, if I were Ruth, you know, I'd be tempted partially. Sometimes when I speak truth, I say it in jest. Just, I get more truth across that way sometimes. But I, I think if I were Ruth, I would say, what am I, a chopped liver? She said that, you know. It's interesting, though, the, the expression uh, what am I, chopped liver, it actually comes from the Jews, the, at least the English-speaking Jews in America and the United Kingdom. Apparently, chopped liver, uh, for those of you who have, who have uh, patronized Jewish delicatessens, uh, which I have not very often, um, chopped liver is, is always on the menu at a Jewish delicatessen, but it's never a main dish. It's always a side dish. Hence the expression that Somehow, someone has been overlooked as insignificant. It's not the main dish, it's just something on the side. You could get it, but you really don't have to have it in that sense. Clearly, Naomi did not see Ruth as significant. She missed it. She missed how significant she was, how God was showing a sign of his own grace to her through Ruth's love for her. In the end, we see it clearly even the ladies all around Naomi say, Ruth is better to you than seven sons. But she didn't see it. She missed God's grace. Additionally, at the end of the text, verse 22, when Naomi and Ruth arrive in Bethlehem, it's the very beginning of barley harvest. Well, that's great. We don't know anything about barley harvest. Barley harvest was the first of the harvest. After that was the wheat harvest and other harvests, but basically... What the, the narrator is trying to tell us is that they came at the exact right moment when the harvest was so plentiful that even the poorest of poor would have more than enough to eat. Every single thing that they were afraid of, they happened to come at the exact right moment. They would have food for months because of the Lord bringing this conviction upon Naomi's heart to come right back at this particular time. The Lord had not only helped her, given her a helper in Ruth, he had also provided a harvest for her. And then in addition, we'll see in the next chapter, also provides a husband for her daughter-in-law. All of these gracious dealings of God, and yet she hasn't seen it. Instead of giving thanks to God, she's accusing God of somehow acting evilly toward her. Little does she know what God is really doing in her life. But again, that's how it is with us too, right? It's the same concept. When we think about Job even, when Job was complaining to God about how God was being unfair in his suffering, when you finally get to the end, after they've talked for hours and hours and hours, lost their voice, by the time you get to Job 38, 39, and the Lord is confronting Job, he simply asks Job, where were you when I created the world? Do you know 
how the world really works? Do you understand what's going on? How I feed all the animals? How I do all these great things? And of course, Job has no answer to that. He doesn't know what God's doing. He thinks he knows God. He thinks he understands his works and his ways, but he doesn't. I came across a, a quote by uh, John Piper. He said it this way. God is always doing 10,000 things in our lives. We might be aware of three of them. But then for us to have the gall to accuse him of being evil and of being our accuser when we've only seen three things and not have seen all the other things he's doing behind the scenes to help us, uh, that, that surely is a, a misinterpretation of God. And we'll do it again and again if we don't look to the Lord for our filling. Of course, the signs of grace are not always easy to see. Uh, it's not always plain. It's not always clear. Um, it's not like the glory of God as it's revealed, especially on the final day in which everything is so plain, so obvious, so easy to see. Uh, but the signs of grace are still there. You just have to have the eyes to see them. You have to look for them. Sometimes um, this aspect of of understanding the grace of God in our lives is, is compared to a, uh, the work of a, a cross-stitch picture, you know, in that sense. And on, the, on the top of the, the cross-stitch, uh, or the front of it, you can see this work of art that's being put together one stitch at a time. But once you've gotten toward the middle of it, you turn it upside down, what does it look like? Just a jumbled mess. You see a bunch of loose ends, and you see knots everywhere. You, you, you sort of can picture what it's supposed to be on the backside. You can still see an image of what something is being accomplished, but it's not clear. It's not glorious. It's not beautiful, but nevertheless, it's still there. And that's the problem. Uh, Corey Tinboom was the, probably the first one, I think, that used this analogy in her poem, the, the Master Weaver's Plan. And in the poem, she said this, oftentimes, the Lord, he, he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forgets he sees the upper and I the underside. You have to understand everything that you interpret, everything that you see right now is the underside. Don't see it fully. You don't see it clearly. You don't see it in all its glory. But you do see signs of his grace woven throughout your life. If you're looking for it, you can see it then when you see it, you want to give thanks by faith, knowing that there's a much better story that you'll understand later on. Later, even when you're in heaven, when the new heaven and new earth comes, and you can see it, all the details unfolded before your eyes, and you'll be astounded at how faithful, how good, and how kind, how loving he's been to you when all you thought was he was against you can't forget that, you know, in the beginning, if you remember in Genesis chapter 2, after everything that he had made, after all that God had created, it said he, he basically looked at it and just said, man, it's very good. Now, you have to understand something about our recreation in Christ. It's a thousand times better than the original creation. The original creation was subjected to sin and failure and misery and emptiness. The new creation is not. It ends in perfection, and it cannot be changed. The imperfect will never enter into it. So 
for us to think for a moment that what God originally created was good, but what he's now recreating is bad doesn't make any sense at all. It's something much more glorious, built upon much better promises, built upon the faithfulness of God. From the beginning until the end, he's, he's, he's told us that he is going to do right by us, that in the end, it ends well. If that's the case, and it is, we have to look at it by faith. You can't just look at it by sight. You have to look to the Lord, cling to him by faith, and say to the Lord, I don't understand what you're doing, but I know by faith that anything that you can give me is better than what I have now. Fill me with the fullness of your joy. It's pretty good. Father, we ask that you would be gracious to us in helping us to understand these truths. Help us not to be so proud to think that we know so much about life and about ourselves. We know so little. The Lord, I pray as well that you would help us to be hungry, thirsty, to know you, O oh Lord, to be filled by you, that we would not be afraid of the emptiness that we experience in this world, knowing that there is a good purpose behind it, that you will lead us to perfection in your presence. So Lord, we pray you would fill us with